hear the word of the Lord. And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is, and everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous, and as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. This is God's word. Preschoolers, y'all can be dismissed to your class. Your teachers will be at the back doors there. So if you're a preschooler, you guys can head on back. Kindergartners staying in here, and everybody uh, who's older than a kindergartner is going to stay in here with us. So I want to invite you guys to take out a copy of God's Word, and let's turn once again to the book of First John. If you're newer to the Bible, um, if you First of all, if you don't have a Bible, we should have the passages on the screens behind me. If you do have a Bible, let's turn to 1 John. It's toward the end of the Bible. You can turn to Revelation and just start skipping a few pages back, and you'll run into 1, 2, and 3 John. We're in 1 John, and we are in chapter 3. We've got a couple verses at the end of chapter 2 we're looking at, and then we're taking this all the way to chapter 3, verse 10. Also, if you are uh, newer to the Bible, the, the larger numbers in, in the, the line of text there, those are chapter numbers, the smaller numbers are verses, so when we say chapter 3, look for the big 3, and the verses are the smaller numbers. Um, as the kids were leaving, it, it made me think of um, kids' favorite question. Every parent and every teacher knows a kid's favorite question. It's one word. Anybody know it? Why, you guys? Yeah, we all know that. The, a kid's favorite question is why. And it's one of my favorite things about kids. My favorite things about kids. And we lose this over time. As we grow older, we lose it. And it's curiosity. Kids are so curious. Uh, John, um, our youngest, um, I can say this because he's not in the room. And he's probably not going to listen to the podcast later. So, um, John, our youngest uh, son, he one time asked us, if alligators were real. He said, are alligators real? And we realized in that moment, we were like, okay, 
we need to take him to a zoo because um, obviously we have not done a good job in helping him understand which animals are real and which ones are not. Are alligators real? We were talking about alligators just looking at pictures. In fairness, he, he loves dinosaurs. And so we were looking at all these dinosaurs and are dinosaurs real? Well, yeah, they were, but like there's no, you can't really find dinosaurs today. They're not around anymore. Well, what about alligators? Are alligators real? And that's where the question came from. But then something <laughs> that we didn't expect happened. Um, we said, yes, alligators are real. That should be the end of that conversation, right? Or, you know, maybe the follow-up would be, where are they? You know, where do they live? Can we go see one? No, John said, why? Why are alligators real? <laughs> that's, when you think about it, um, <laughs> that's not the easiest question. Because God decided to create them. Um, I, don't, I don't know. They, they maybe survived, uh, uh, you know, the, a meteor attack unlike the dinosaur. I don't know. What's the answer here? Like we, you know, but why? Why are uh, 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 alligators real? And kids, they ask questions like, they ask questions like this all the time. It's why. I remember uh, my time as a substitute teacher in southeastern Kentucky, um, a job that I will never, ever, no matter what happens, take again, <laughs> okay, a substitute teacher in southeastern Kentucky. If you've ever been a substitute teacher, you know how particularly difficult that task is. You show up to a class that you've never met before, kids you have never seen in your life, and you show up and you're given like either a sheet of paper or a binder with instructions from their teacher of what needs to happen that day. And so you, you just start from the beginning. You start at the top of the list. Okay, here's what we're going to do today. And the kids are going to ask you at some point, not all the kids, but some of the kids, why are we doing that? We don't usually do that. We don't usually do that. This is what we usually do. Why are we doing that? And as a substitute teacher, it's a little bit different. I don't know why, right? I don't know. The teacher didn't explain. The teacher didn't say, okay, tell them to get their books out and turn to this page and tell them to copy the definitions and write them out um, on a piece of paper. We never do that. Why are we doing that? The teacher didn't write out a defense of why she's giving that assignment today. Just do it. And that's what I would just say about it. Just do it. But kids, they don't like that. And, and none of us do. We like to know why we're doing what we're being asked to do. You're, you're given expectations this is what you're supposed to do. You want to know why. You want to know why you're doing it. What's the purpose? You see, in, in our passage today, which, by the way, is the last passage in this, this section on the theme of light. It began back in verse 5 of chapter 1. God is light, and in him there's no darkness at all. And then there was that primary uh, exhortation, walk in the light as he is in the light. This is the last passage in that section. He's going to move on to the theme of love um, in, the next, in the next little bit. But here, he's, he's going to make this argument for why we should be holy. Why we should be holy. In that entire section that Paige just read for us, there's one exhortation. There's only one command. Abide in him. That's it. The rest of that section is theological explanation. A defense, why? These are, these are reasons why we should be holy, why we should be set apart from evil and wickedness, why we should pursue moral purity and righteousness. He's essentially making an argument for why we should always seek to do what is right. And what he's really getting at in this passage, if we could say there's one point in this passage, what he's really getting at is that a Christian cannot 
live in habitual sin and must live in habitual holiness. That, that's the point. Now, when John is talking about sin and righteousness in this passage, he's not talking about individual actions, individual sins that we commit or individual good deeds that we commit. Um, he's talking about habits. He says things like a practice of righteousness, not just individual righteous actions, a practice of righteousness. He talks about those who keep on sinning, those who persist in sin, those for whom sin has become a habit. That's, that's what he's talking about here, habits, both sinful and holy. And he's saying, if you are a Christian, you're still going to sin. We, we can't come away from, from this letter and think that John thinks Christians will never sin. He does not think that. It's, it's been too clear uh, so far in the letter. So he, he, he will, will submit. Christians will still sin. But your life cannot be characterized by unrepentant, habitual sin. And if you are a Christian, you're not perfect. You're not, you're not perfect. By any stretch of the imagination, if you read 1 John and you think he's saying that you have to be perfect right now in this life, you don't understand what he's talking about. He's, he's not saying that. So you're not perfect, but your life must be characterized by holiness. It must be. A person in habitual sin is someone who knows they're sinning against God. You know it. You're not ignorant. You know that you're sinning against God, and you don't care. He's, to keep on sinning, to persist in sin, is essentially indifference to sin. You don't care. Yeah, I'm sinning against God. So what? And what John is saying is that a Christian can't be that person. If you're that person... You're not a Christian. John is basically saying here that such a lifestyle is incompatible with the Christian life. It's like oil and water. It's like Kentucky basketball fans wearing Duke, you know, shirts. It's never going to happen. It's impossible. It's like Alabama fans in humility, you know. It's just... I mean, you just can't do it. Yeah, I can say that, too, because I think all our Alabama fans are, are out this week. Is that right? Yeah. Oh, we can go all in then. We can go all in. Um, I was going to say Tennessee fans in humility, um, but I'm, you know, I'm really bitter. I'll definitely say it next week if you guys win next week. Um, but they can't, they can't coexist. John's continuing to call us to a life of holiness. He's continuing to say, Walk in the light with God. But here he does something that's so important for us that all of our toddlers would appreciate, that all of us should appreciate. He gives us the why. Why? Why is habitual sin incompatible with the Christian life? What motivation do we have to deeply care about how we live? Why should we be holy? Why should we be set apart and pure in our thoughts, in our words, in our actions? John gives us five reasons. 
five reasons. I, I, I was approaching, I was talking to Corey on the phone yesterday, and he was like, oh, man, I'll let you get back to work. And I was like, yeah, I got a lot to do. I decided to change the structure of the entire sermon, and this was yesterday evening. So um, I decided to take this approach because there are lots of ways we could approach this passage, but I want you to, to leave today with five truths, five, five clear things that serve as motivation, real motivation for you to care about your actions, for you to care about the way you think about God and the world and other people, and for, for the way that you speak to others, that you care, that it bothers you when you sin against other people and when you sin against God. It, 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 you're motivated to, to pursue holy living. Five reasons. Number one, be holy because you are a new creation. Be holy because you have new life. Same, uh, two ways of saying the same thing. Let's look at this one first. Be holy because you have new life, because you are a new creation. Well, it begins here in verse 28. And he writes, And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. John, John's saying right here, right at the very beginning of this section, he's saying that habits of holiness, habitual holiness, a practice of righteousness, comes from being born again. That's where it comes from. It originates from a new birth, a spiritual rebirth that happens within your own heart. And so he says, everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. So if you walk in that reality, what, this is what he's saying, if you practice, if you partake in the new life that God has given to you, you can have confidence. You can rejoice at the return of Jesus. Because when Jesus returns, he's going to return as a judge. He's not going to return uh, in the meek. Okay, sorry. He tries to catch me. Okay. When Jesus returns, he will not return in humility. He will not return as a meek servant. He will return in glory. He will return in power. He will return as a judge to judge the living and the dead. And John is saying, you can have confidence. You can rejoice. You can long for the return of Jesus the judge because... You are living righteous in lives, and you're living righteous lives because you have been made new. You have been born again. You know, this, this language reminds me of Jesus and his conversation with the religious leader Nicodemus. You remember when Jesus and Nicodemus, Nicodemus came to him in the dark of night, and he's wanting to talk with him. He's really curious about Jesus, and Jesus tells Nicodemus, essentially, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. I love how stark that is. This isn't a suggestion. This is just reality. This is just how it works. If you're not born again, you can't see the kingdom of God. If you want to see the kingdom of God, you have to be born again. The order of things start to take shape. Seeing the kingdom of God, being righteous in what we say and do, holy living, is impossible apart from a creative and powerful work of God in our hearts. 
our holiness begins with God's resurrecting power. God has raised, this is what we believe, God has raised us to new life in Christ. He's raised us to new life. We are a brand new person. He's regenerated our hearts. He has spiritually raised us from the dead. We are new creations all together. Something new is here when you trust in Jesus. And so understanding that your life is in Christ, that it's hidden in Christ, as Paul says in Colossians 3, and that Christ, in the same place he says, is your life, that all puts you on the path to holiness. But what are we prone to do when we think about holiness or righteousness or obedience or, or doing the right thing? We reverse that order. And we're prone to think that, that we have to figure out how to live a life that's pleasing to God. And then once we figure that out and we start pleasing God in the way that we're living, then he will reward us with new life. We will receive eternal life. We will receive new life if we figure things out and we start to please God. But, but what if we were clinging to the truth that our new life begins with resurrection? That it begins with a work of God in us. That's where, that's where it begins. What if we thought that way? Then we would see that new life in Christ is the starting point, not the end result of our spiritual growth. You know, when I think about, about this, I think about um, new shoes, okay? So um, do, you ever, do you remember when you would get new shoes as a kid growing up? All right, as a basketball player, this was really, really special to me. Now, I know this is going to shock a lot of you, but I've never really cared too much about clothes or fashion. I know, shocker. Like, I know I just, I, I just give those vibes off that I just, I, I'm a fashionista. You know, I just love, love, you know, fashion and clothes and shoes and all that. But, I, yeah, I don't, in case you're missing it. Um, but when I was growing up and played basketball, the coolest thing in the world for me was when I would get new shoes. You get new shoes for the new season. And let me tell you something. When I would get those new shoes, I hate to say LeBron James's name every single week, but when I got LeBron's first shoe, I, you should see, should have seen the way I treated that shoe. I mean, I, I only wore basketball shoes on the basketball court during practice and during games. And as soon as it was over, I mean, they literally, the only surface they ever touched was the hardwood. That was it. I would take them off. I'd put them back in the box or I'd put them in my locker and, and really protect them and care for them. And, and it affected the way that, because I, I didn't care about what I wore. I mean, I wore a hoodie and basketball shorts every single day to school. Like, I, I would wear shoes out. I mean, like, my feet are basically just, like, running up on the concrete. My, my parents would be like, probably should get you some new shoes, but I mean, I guess, I mean, I, these, these seem fine though, but my basketball shoes, when they were new, when they were, when they were precious to me, it affected the way that I lived, I, I lived like a, a completely different person, listen, our life in Christ is new, but here's the difference, when, when I would get basketball shoes, they would be new for a while, and then they would wear out, and they would get old, and the next season, I would have to get newer shoes, our new life in Christ never wears out. It never grows old. It is new every single day. Our rebirth leads to constant perpetual renewal within our hearts. And so it is inconceivable. Do you see what John's saying here? It's inconceivable that our new lives in Christ, if we are new creations, it's inconceivable that they wouldn't be different than they were before. 
By thinking of yourself as a new creation, you can start to live as a new creation. If you see yourself as having new life, you can begin to live in a way that conforms to that new life. And this is actually, strangely enough, the way that habits form. If you want to form a new habit, one of the best ways you can do that is to start thinking of yourself as the person who does the new habit. And I've used this illustration before. And, uh, uh, but basically, when a person who is wanting to quit smoking is offered a cigarette, they, uh, when they're offered a cigarette, they have a much better chance of success of quitting smoking if they respond, no thanks. It's a little longer this time. That was going to be quick. Test. Good. <laughs> anyway, right in the middle of an illustration, too. Let me restart that. I'm sorry. When a person who's trying to quit smoking, when they're, when they're offered a cigarette and they respond, no thanks, I'm not a smoker. This mic does not want this illustration to happen um, at all. I'm going to switch. All right. And they say, I'm not a smoker. They have a much greater chance of success of quitting smoking than if they say, no thanks, I'm trying to quit. No thanks, I'm trying to quit. No, they say, no thanks, I'm not a smoker. That's not who I am anymore. It becomes identity driven. We should resist sinful habits, not because of what we're trying to do. Just trying to be a better person. You know, just... Just trying to, trying to you know, do what God wants me to do. No, we are resisting sinful habits. We are putting on holy habits because of who we are. We're not just trying to be a holy person. We have been born of God. We have new life. And this new life is hidden with Christ. And so we want our lives to reflect that reality. It is only by partaking of this new life and walking in this new life that we will be able to be holy. So, if, if today, by faith in Jesus, by the grace of God, you have new life in Christ, if your life is really his, if you are a new creation, it is inconceivable for you to revert back to your old life. John says in verse 6 and verse 9, No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. If your life is in Christ, you cannot have a habit that's unrepentant, this indifference to sin, where you just keep on, you persist in sin. It's, it's impossible. It's inconceivable. And then he says in verse 9, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning. Habitual sin has no place in the new life that God has given us in Christ. So we should be holy because we have new life. We are new creations. But reason number two that, that we should be holy is we should be holy because we are God's children. Be holy because you are God's child. John says that we are God's children now. Right at the beginning of verse 2. Beloved, we are God's children now. Right now. Right now. From the moment you first trusted Jesus onward, you are a child of the living God. This is a status that you carry. You are heirs 
of his promises. Everything that belongs to Jesus as God's son belongs to us as God's children. That's why John marvels at this. You see what he says? See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. We need to marvel at this reality. The Christian is placed in the same relationship to God that is occupied by Jesus. Now, there are important distinctions between God's children and God's son, right? Very important distinctions. But is it not interesting that we are granted, that we are given the same status as Jesus himself? And if you think I'm stretching it, just listen to the way Paul puts it in Romans 8. He says, the spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And then he expounds on it. He says, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. We are fellow heirs with Christ. We will share in all the glory that he will receive on the last day. Why? Because we are God's children. And how did that happen? It happened on the basis of God's love. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. He's saying we are children of God because God loved us. Not because we loved him. Our place in the family of God, our adoption, it is rooted in God's grace, not in our goodness. So we're children of God on the basis of his love, not on the basis of our obedience. That's where it begins. And this is important because our place in the family doesn't depend on our holiness. Our holiness depends on our place in the family. Because we are God's children on the basis of God's love, we should be holy as our Father is holy. This is what John says in verse 10. If you, if you want to look down to, to verse 10, he draws this, this connection to this truth, this identity of, that we're God's children. He says, by this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. See that distinction he makes? There, it's evident. It is clear who belongs to God and who belongs to Satan. And he says, whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God. This, this is John's way of saying that children look like their fathers, for better or worse. You know, not just physically, but spiritually, emotionally. Kids mirror their parents. You've noticed. Your kids mirror everything about you, your mannerisms, your behavior, your reactions. That's why it is so crucial as parents that we watch, we keep a close eye on the way that we respond to various things. Our kids will start to reflect how we respond to stress. And how we respond to joy. How we respond to grief. They will see us and they will mimic us. They're, they're sponges. They absorb. And, and this, is, this is the way that we are as humans too. This is the way it works. So, so what John's trying to, to help us see here is how can we treat sin with indifference? How can we just habitually, unrepentantly live in sin, forsake holiness... If our spiritual father is perfectly holy, 
How can we unashamedly walk in darkness when there is no darkness at all in our Father? If our Father is light, then you should see light in us. If our Father is holy, then you should see holiness in us. God's children should resemble him, resemble his character, resemble his heart. Our habits demonstrate who our spiritual father is. I had a whole illustration from a scene in one of my favorite movies growing up, Remember the Titans, of, of, that I was going to call Who's Your Daddy, and I decided to take it out, okay? It just probably wouldn't have landed well. But, but in truth, in truth, our lives, the way that we live them, it demonstrates who our father really is. See what I was gonna see where I was gonna take it? Like is God's daddy or is Satan? But see, that just doesn't, it just does not fly, and I don't want to strike that that chord. But in reality, that's what John's saying. Based on the way you live, you show who your father is. That's why we care about holiness. Because we're God's children. We want to look like our father, we want to resemble our father. It matters. We need to be holy in our thoughts, in our words, in our actions, because, on the basis of, not to earn anything, because we are already God's children. Okay, so we should be holy because we are God's children. There's a third reason that, that John gives here. We should be holy because one day we will look like Jesus. John gives us vision here. He has a vision for, for holy living. He says, listen, one day, right, right now, you are God's children, right now. You're like, me? Yes, you, on the basis of your faith in Jesus, God's grace through Jesus, you have been adopted. You are a child of God. Right now, you have new life. Right now, this moment, you have been reborn. You have new life in Christ. You're a new creation. Yes, you, even you. But now, he gives us vision. He says, but... You're not currently what you will one day be. One day, you are going to be so much greater than you currently are right now. You're frustrated with yourself. You can't live up to the standard of, of holiness that is, that is put out here. You're trying your hardest. Listen, you, you are still God's child. You are still reborn. But you also have the hope of one day being perfectly made like Jesus. One day, you will be like him and this is motivation for holy living now you see he says beloved we are God's children now and what we will be has not yet appeared but we know that when he appears we shall be like him because we will see him as he is God is not finished with us yet we will one day be something far greater than we are now. And he draws this connection. It forms the basis of a pursuit of holiness. The very next thing he says in verse 3, he says, And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. So because of the gospel, we are God's children. But what we will one day be has not yet appeared. So, if you're hoping in Jesus, if you believe the gospel, you will purify yourself. We are not called to be holy as a means of earning our salvation, winning a place in God's family. Instead, we are called to be holy because we live in this time that's between the times. 
between the times of God making us his children by his grace and the appearance of what we will ultimately be. This is a vision for holy living. We should strive to be right now what we will perfectly be one day. He says here, this is where you're going, to the likeness of Jesus. You are headed toward perfect purity, perfect righteousness. So start living that way now. He says in verse 7, whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. So we will one day be perfect in purity, perfect in righteousness, perfect in holiness. Why? Because that's what Jesus is like. It's amazing, isn't it? We think of Jesus as gentle and lowly, and he is. We think of him as gracious and welcoming, and he is. We think of him as humble and loving, and he is. But Jesus is also holy and righteous. He is pure. He has perfectly set himself apart from sin and lawlessness. He has perfectly set himself apart from evil and wickedness. John says everyone who hopes in Jesus purifies himself. Why? Because Jesus himself is pure. We're called to be holy because Jesus is holy. And the appearance of our future glorified selves will be a future that is marked by purity and holiness. The end goal of our salvation informs our current living. Our end goal is to be like him. So while we wait for that day, John is saying, let's pursue what we will one day be. Let's get an early start on it. We're going to be perfectly like Jesus one day. Let's start being like him now. So why should you be holy? Well, because one day you will be like Jesus. There's a fourth reason here, though. And, and this is really interesting to me. Because it feels so out of place. And it feels so random. The fourth reason is we should be holy because of what sin actually is. All right? Look with me at verse 4 of chapter 3. I, I had no clue what to do with this verse. And I had to uh, consult a number of different commentaries just to even get an understanding. But even after all that, I was like, what? why is this here? Because you're reading, and, he, and he's talking about adoption. He's talking about rebirth. He's talking about the return of Jesus. Uh, he's talking about the, the future uh, glorious day when we will be like him. And then after, after verse 4, he's talking about how holiness and sin are incompatible, how the Christian cannot live and have a practice of sinning. And then you've got verse 4 just kind of floating. It's just kind of floating here. Here's what he says. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. It's almost like he just dumps a definition right in the middle of of his argument here, and it doesn't, it doesn't really seem to, to have a place. What do we do with this? Well, we have a couple options. First, John could mean, and this is the, the easiest, simplest reading of, of, the, of the verse, he could mean that sin isn't just breaking any moral code. Sin is breaking God's law. That's what sin is, and that's true. Um, the only hang-up I have with that option, the only hang-up, is that John hasn't been talking about the law at, at all. I, I don't just mean in this, con I mean the whole letter. 
He doesn't mention the law one time. The closest he came is whenever he said that if you want to know that you know God, you need to keep his commands. That's kind of close. But he hasn't been talking about the law. So why all of a sudden insert this statement, hey, by the way, sin is breaking God's law. I don't know if you knew that. There's an interesting tidbit here I want to share with you. Sin is breaking God's law. I'm, I'm not totally convinced that that's what he's doing. Even though it's possible, because John sort of, in this letter, is just kind of, you know, throwing stuff together at different times. What John could be doing, um, that I think is a little bit more consistent with the context, he could be using the word lawlessness the way that Paul uses the word lawlessness when he talks about the man of lawlessness, which in that context is in reference to the Antichrist. Okay, the man of lawlessness, the Antichrist, who would come in destruction and opposition to Jesus himself. So if, if he's using lawlessness in that way, it's possible that what John's really saying is, hey, make sure you understand what sin is, by the way. Sin is not just impoliteness. It's not just, just, just inappropriate. Sin is outright, utter unashamed opposition to God. The man of lawlessness, the man who opposes, who who is antagonistic toward Jesus. That's what sin is. It's lawlessness. You're setting yourself up as God's enemy when you are sinning against him. When we habitually sin, we're not just doing something we shouldn't do. You're taking sides. And you're setting yourself up against God. You're aligning with his enemies. And I think we have a little bit of a clue from verse 8. Look at verse 8. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The same kind of thing in verse 10. It's evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. That's That's what's at stake here. Whose side are you on? So if you're tracking with John, what he's saying is we cannot rejoice in being born of God, adopted by God. We cannot hope in our future likeness with Christ and at the same time persist in sin. Why? Because of what sin really is. High treason against the kingdom. Abandonment of your father. Sin is a willful siding with God's enemies. It's, it's siding with Satan. And this is an important clarifying point because I think that we are often tempted to regard sin as a matter of indifference, especially certain sins, especially comfortable sins. The ones that we commit all the time, which, by the way, are the most dangerous, that you're like, yeah, you know, I'm struggling with this thing which we probably need to revisit the definition of struggle, you know? It's like, yeah, I'm really struggling with this sin. It's like, I don't know, commit it awful easily. (laughs) It doesn't seem like you're resisting too much. And we all have have things like that in our lives, whether it's an attitude toward another person, whether it's emotional, whether it's physical. We need to see what sin is. It's habitual alignment with God's enemies. You can't be both for and against God. You can't be both his son, his daughter, and his enemy. 
You were once his enemy, and by his powerful grace, he has made you his child. So, so here's, here's where we draw an exhortation. Let's live like we're on God's side, because we are. That's our motivation to be holy. That's why it matters how you live. Do you want to live in accordance with the side that you're on? You are not God's enemy. So, so let's stop living as if we were God's en- enemies. Okay, one more reason. One more reason. This is the most beautiful one. So we should, we should be holy because we have new life. We're new creations. We should be holy because we are God's children. We should be holy because one day we'll be like Jesus. And we should be holy because of what sin really is. But finally, and, and most simply, and most, and most beautifully, we should be holy because Jesus died for us. The greatest motivation we have to be holy comes right at the center of this passage in one single verse. Verse 5. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins. And in him there is no sin. He appeared in order to take away sins. Our motivation for holiness is directly tied to Jesus and his purpose in coming to us. And we tend to forget this about Jesus' death on the cross. Jesus died on the cross for your sins, and we are asked, what does that mean? And we respond, it means that we can be forgiven of our sins. And we are correct. That's true. Jesus died for our forgiveness. But Jesus' death on the cross did more for us than just grant us forgiveness. Jesus' death in our place, when he who knew no sin became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God, through that work, he removed the penalty of sin, meaning that we can have pardon, we can have forgiveness, but he also removed the power of sin over our lives. We cannot claim that Jesus died for us and at the same time say that sin has power over your life because it does not. Jesus died for you, meaning he has released the power of sin over you. Sin is powerless against you because Jesus died for you. He died for our holiness. Immediately following this verse, John says, no one who abides in him keeps on sinning. So he's he's making this logical point. Jesus died to take away sins. On that basis, do not keep on sinning. And John could have said, Jesus came to take away sins. So be encouraged. Even if you do sin, you're forgiven. Well, he's already said that. He said that earlier in the letter. Here he's emphasizing that Jesus came to take away sins, to empower us to renounce a life of sin and pursue a life of holiness. So it's not just that we should renounce sin and we should pursue holiness. Like, that's a good thing to do. Like, we should do it. And that's what we've been saying this whole time. On the basis of all these truths, we have all these reasons, all this motivation to renounce sin and pursue holiness. Now what he's saying is you can do it. Not just that you should, you can. Why? Because Jesus made it so. You can be holy as Jesus is holy. 
Now remember, not perfectly now. We are not now what, we'll, what we will one day be. One day it will be revealed that we are just like Jesus, but that's not now. But the benefits of his death are ours now. You can live a life that reflects the pure and righteous character of Jesus. You really can. You can be set apart from wickedness and evil and all kinds of sin. You can put your sinful habits to death. You can begin new habits of holiness. You can do it. Why? Not because you're really smart and you'll figure it out. Not because you're really strong and, and your will will just determine itself. Not because you're really spiritual, but because Jesus really died for you. He died to take away your sins, to drive them as far from you as the east is from the west. This is literal. One day we'll experience this verse in full, that we will have no sin in us whatsoever because Jesus has taken them away. And he has thrown them in a lake of fire on the basis of his death in our place so don't minimize the power of Jesus' death by limiting its reach to your guilt it reaches your guilt but it also reaches your hate and it also reaches your bitterness and it reaches your grumbling and it reaches your lust and it reaches your envy and it reaches your idolatry your slothfulness, your anger your pride and the death of Jesus empowers you to put it all to death, to leave it all behind. So on the basis of Jesus' death, which gives us power to kill sin, we are called to be holy as he is holy. Now there are many reasons we could give for why we should do the right thing this week, for why we should resist sin and resist temptation, for why we should strive to be holy. And some of those may be just like the answers that I would give to kids when I was a substitute teacher. You're just supposed to. Teacher said... God said, be holy. That should be enough. And, you know, we also need to admit Christians are not the only ones out there trying to live good lives, to pursue righteous living. But the beauty and uniqueness of Christianity is that the call to purity, the call to holiness, the call to righteousness is that it is not transactional. We're not called to be holy so that God will bless and love us in return. We are called to be holy because of who we are and what Christ has done. We are new creations. We are children of God. We will one day be just like Jesus. We are not God's enemies. We are his friends. Jesus died for us. Because of who you are, be holy as he is holy. Walk in the light as he is in the light.